question for you this morning, and you can answer in the chat. How many of you grew up singing the song, Jesus Loves the Little Children, in Sunday school? It's a very, I grew up singing this song as a little kid singing, Jesus Loves the Little Children. I'll sing it for you. I'm not allowed on the worship team. I haven't quite met the standard, but I can sing and fall and preach a little bit. Uh, it goes, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. You're welcome. Um, what's not to love about this song, right? It's got Jesus, it's got love, it's got little children, it's the sweetest little tune you could ever sing, but if you noticed, there's a, a line in the middle of the song that may have stuck out, may have caught your attention, and the line is red and yellow, black and white. So right in the middle of this song, this sweet, lovely children's song, is a concept that we know of today or we think of today as the concept of race. Today, I am launching a brand new sermon series. I am very excited to launch it. It is called Reimagining Race Through the Eyes of God. Reimagining Race Through the Eyes of God. And I want to tell you why I'm excited. I don't think excited actually captures how I feel about preaching this series. I am I am ecstatic, I'm thrilled, I feel energized and passionate about preaching this. This is something that I think about, I pray about. It's, a, it's such a deep part of me personally. I'm not coming at this series from a theoretical or abstract basis. This is something that is, ever since I was a kid, has been deeply important to me for, for many reasons, uh, some of which I'll probably describe in later uh, later uh, uh, sermons, but this is a deeply important topic. Even if you don't, if it, even if it's not a topic that you think about a lot, it is a deeply important topic in our culture and in our world. The reality or the thought of race touches, impacts almost every aspect of your life, whether you realize it or not. Where you live, where you go to school, uh, relationships, finances, housing, healthcare. Uh, friendships, job status, literally every aspect of your life is touched in some way by the concept of race. And because it is so deeply intertwined in your life, it is a potentially very sensitive and volatile topic. In other words, people can get very, uh, very uh, anxious and worried when we begin to talk about the idea of race. It has become a point of division and dissent and anger and fear and outrage in our country, and it has become politicized in this direction and that direction. It has become, a, 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 I think of it sometimes as a landmine. And we talked about this years ago. It's a landmine that the church can either gently and thoughtfully and carefully diffuse so that 
other generations coming behind us can walk down this path that we're walking down and not blow themselves up. Or it's a topic that the church can sidestep and try to walk around to avoid damaging itself. But then when our children come down this path, they blow themselves up. What I want to do in the next few weeks with you is I want to get in there and I want, to, I want to get into this topic of race with you from the biblical perspective. And I want to see what God has to say about us, about race, about unity, about what it means to be one family. What does God have to say about this? Because I believe this with all my heart. I believe that, that on a small scale, one family church, our church, has an opportunity to lead not only our city, but our nation on this topic. I don't know how many churches you've been to. I've never been a part of any church or any other organization of any kind that is as unified in our multiplicity, in our diversity as one family church, from overseers to trustees to ministry council to staff to team leaders to life group leaders to members to guests to visitors. Every level of one family church, every subgroup in one family church is saturated with people from different ethnicities, tribes, tongues, languages. It is a richly diverse, but a deeply unified community. That does not happen by accident. That happens because there are a group of people who are passionate about pursuing God's vision of what it means to be one family. And it's not just our church. This is a big picture that I wanna throw at you at the beginning of this. I believe that followers of Jesus around the globe, I believe the church has an opportunity, an opportunity to be a radical, revolutionary voice on what it means to reimagine who we are as a, as a global community. I believe we have an opportunity and a calling and a mission to bring about God's vision of what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. We have an opportunity as a church to be the head and not the tail to be at the cutting edge and not the bitter end. We have an opportunity to lead the culture and lead the world on the topic of race. We shouldn't shy away from it. We shouldn't hide from it. We should dive into it, which is what we're gonna do right now. So let me pray for us and let's get in to our sermon this morning. Father, I pray that your spirit would fill this place. Give me your words to speak. Give me your strength. Uh, give me your courage and your wisdom uh, to speak truthfully from your word about this very difficult and sometimes volatile, uh, painful even topic, uh, the topic that we think of today as race. Um, give us your wisdom and your power and let us break through and be a shining light, Lord, for our city, for our country, for our world to your glory, in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. So the song, Jesus Loves Little Children of the World, was written in the late 1800s. It was actually written by a preacher who, uh, post-Civil War, wanted to express Christ's universal love for everybody. So he chose a passage, Matthew 19. Matthew 19 is the passage where Jesus says, suffer the little children to come to me. Uh, and the, and, and um, this pastor said, I love this passage and I'm gonna write a song. So he writes the song to try to bring people together. And he says, 
you know, God loves everybody. There's a universal sense in which Jesus loves everybody. And then to be more specific, he uses the categories that he believes in or that he thinks of at that time, red, yellow, black, white. Four distinct racial groups that are biologically in his mind different, genetically different, and probably have different uh, attributes, characteristics, moral qualities, and psychological qualities. That's the idea of race that he's working with in that song. And that's the idea of race that a lot of us think of when we start to think of people of different races. So the question that we're going to address today is, where does this idea come from? At the very basic level, where do we get the idea of race? Where do we get the idea that there are basically four distinct human groups of people that are separated biologically and genetically and, you know, and have different morals, uh, moral qualities and personality qualities? Where, where do we come up with that idea? Uh, and I, I really just want to ask the question today, and that's the title of today's sermon, is who created race? Now, if, if you uh, ever... Uh, grew up in church or you've been to Sunday school, a lot of times when the question is asked, who created X, Y, or Z, uh, it's basically a, a rhetorical question. You know the answer. God, right? We're in a church. So basically every answer, you just, it's God, whatever, whatever the question is. In fact, I remember a story about a Sunday school teacher who was asking uh, their class, his class. He said, listen, class, I want to describe something to you and I want um, I want you to tell me what I'm thinking. He says, I'm thinking of a little uh, creature that lives in the trees, has a furry tail, eats nuts, um, jumps from tree to tree, uh, and wags its tail and, and chatters when it gets excited. And a little boy tentatively raises his hand in the Sunday school room, and the little boy says, uh, the teacher calls on him, and the little boy says, well, it sounds like a squirrel, but I'm going to go with Jesus right? Because Jesus is the answer. God is the right answer for all the questions that we ask in church. Well, maybe today, some of us, when we ask the question, who created race? We say, well, God created race. God must have created us into these four distinct biological categories. That must be what he did. So I want to explore that question with you today by looking at the scripture. I want to dive in to Genesis chapter 1, where the scripture describes God's creation of humanity. And let's look at where race came from. Did it come from God? So we're going to start in Genesis 1, verse 27, 28. The scripture says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So as I'm reading this, I'm getting a picture of a God who is creating humanity in his likeness, in his image, with his imprint upon them and creating the male and female, blessing them, sending them out into the earth and, say, and saying, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. What I don't see in this passage is a reference to God saying, I'm going to separate people according to biological groups, and they're going to be distinct biological groups from one another. I just don't see that in this scripture. So let's read a little bit further. Let's go down to Genesis 2, verse 7. It says, and the Lord God formed man, this is one of my favorite verses, formed man out of the dust of the ground 
and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. I love this passage because it's got the, it's got the, 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 the almost sort of anthropomorphic nature of God reaching into the muck and the mire of the earth that he created and, and forming man, forming humanity out of, the, out, of the, out of the mud and then breathing his own breath. And, and now humanity is imbued with a soul, a soul that is given to humanity by God's very own breath. It's a beautiful picture. Now what's missing from the picture is this idea that God then subdivided us into biological categories and made us genetically or biologically distinct from one another. I don't see that in that passage. In fact, as you go on through Genesis, you go on to Genesis 10, and what you start to see is the population moving around the globe, different, different languages, different tribes, different nationalities, different music, maybe even different religious practices start to come up. But what you don't see ever in the entire book of Genesis is any reference to people being fundamentally different from each other, biologically, genetically, into different distinct racial groups. You just don't see that in Genesis. It's not there. There are zero references to what we think of as race in the book of Genesis. So what I did and what I would encourage you to do is read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges and Ruth and all the way through the Bible. And what you will find is what I found. There is no reference to what we think of as race in the Bible. Not one. Zero references to God subdividing us into biologically distinct groups. It's not there. There are different tribes, different tongues, different languages, different nationalities, but the idea of race is not in there. So if you are following along, I want you to memorize this. I want you to tweet it. I want you to share it. There is no theological basis for race. You can look through the whole scripture. What you will find is that there is no theological basis for you or me to say, wow, human beings are genetically different from each other into these four distinct groups. It's just not in there. Now, maybe you're saying, okay, great. It's not in the Bible, but the Bible's not a scientific book. Um, maybe they just didn't know that they were part of different races, but in fact they were. And maybe we have learned through science that there are these four distinct biological categories. And it's a naturally occurring phenomenon in nature. Maybe that's where your mind goes, right? So let's explore that question. Did nature create race? If God didn't create race, it, maybe did, did nature create race? Did it come out naturally occurring in nature? I want to read you this morning from uh, a, a scientist uh, his name is Alan H. Goodman, professor of biological anthropology at Hampshire College. And, and the reason I'm reading this particular professor is because this professor is synthesizing the viewpoints of biologists and scientists around the globe, from Yale to your local community college, what scientists, especially in the, in the field of biology, uh, have to say in the field of genetics, what they have to say about this idea of race, about this idea that we are biologically distinct 
from one another uh, in, in compartmentalized ways. And that this is not something new. This is an old article from 2003. So this, this is not some cutting edge information. This is information that scientists have known for a long time. The article is called Race, the Power of an Illusion. And here's what uh, Alan Goodman writes. He says, race is not based on biology. Race is a cultural construction. Biological race is a myth that's separating us. Scientists have actually been saying for quite a while that race as biology doesn't exist. There's no biological basis for race. It's a fascinating statement because just a moment ago we said there's no theological basis for race. And here's a scientist uh, who represents the voice of the overwhelming uh, number of scientists around the planet saying that there's no biological basis for race. Most variation in terms of skin uh, or genetic variation uh, most variation occurs within race versus between races or among races. He says the idea of race assumes that there are set boundaries between races. But we know that scientifically to be untrue. There's no racial boundary that's ever been found. Any one trait that one looks at, one tends to see gradual variation from one group to another. Gradual variation from one group to another. The fact of human variation is that it's continuous. It's not lumped into three or four or five racial groups. In other words, what Alan Goodman and the overwhelming number of scientists around the world are saying is that there is just as much genetic variation within what we think of as a racial group as there is between racial groups. Now, let me show you what I mean when we talk about variation. Now, you, you, may, you may be saying to yourself, I can just look at somebody and tell you what race they are. I can look at somebody, I can tell you that that, that person is black or that person is white. or uh, I can just tell, I can just look and tell. Well, what you can tell is place, not race. What you can tell is where somebody's ancestors probably came from, which is a geographical designation, but you cannot tell race as a biological category because as a biological category with boundaries and edges, it just doesn't exist. Let me show you what I mean. This is fascinating. When you look at a map of the various variation of skin tones that people have, have uh, historically had, what you see is a gradual variation of skin tone that, if you notice, comes away from the equator, okay? Now, this is not a map of contemporary society because there's migration and people moving all around, but this is a, a, a map of what skin tones would have looked like for people who lived in these regions historically for thousands of years. And what is fascinating is that you do not see any boundary lines on this map. What you see is that people who live in sunnier, hotter regions developed darker skin to subsist and to exist in that region. Whereas people who lived in further north regions and even in some of the more southern regions that weren't as sunny or weren't as hot developed lighter skin tones so that they could absorb the vitamin D that they needed from the sun and continue to be healthy. But what you do not see are boundaries. What you see in this picture is God... The, the truth of what God says in Genesis, 
go into all of the earth and multiply and fill it. And then God designed us to be able to do just that. God designed us to be able to go into all the world and he, in the genius of who he is, he made us adaptable to the regions where we lived. In other words, and I want you to get this, God is not colorblind. He's not colorblind. He actually created us so that the shade of our skin and the texture of our hair and our features would adapt to the areas where we lived for thousands of years. That's how he made us. He made us so that we could fulfill the calling that he put on us as humanity. So when you think of who you are and where your ancestors come from, and you look at your own skin tone and your own hair and your own features, what you don't see is race, you see place. You see a history of where your people came from and you see the genius of God at work making us to be adaptable to the regions where we live. So you should love your brown skin, your black skin, your olive skin, your copper-colored skin. You should love your stringy hair or frizzy hair or curly hair. You should love your bald head, your fat head, your full lips, your narrow nose, your broad nose. God made you this way because he designed us in his genius to do what he's called us to do, which is to populate the earth. He never divided us into these biological categories. What we see is gradual variation around the globe, depending on where we come from, where our people come from, where our ancestors come from. That's how God made us. So there's no theological basis for this idea that we're divided into these four biological categories. And we've learned that there's no, there's no uh, biological basis for us to believe that we have been subdivided into these four biological distinct categories. What we see is that we are one family who have common ancestry, who populated the earth, and who developed and adapted different features, different, uh, different skin tones, different hair textures, different facial features, body structures, muscle structures, height, weight. If you look at, if you look at um, the Sherpas in Tibet, for instance, you see them having developed a, a, a shorter body structure, broad lungs, so that they can breathe up in the Himalayas. You just see that happening. It doesn't mean they're biologically distinct from you. Over time, they've adapted into the environment that they're in. And so did your ancestors, and so did mine. So there's no biological basis. There's no theological basis for race. So where does this idea come from? Where do we get the idea of race? Today, I want to ask you to buckle your seatbelts because we're going to dive in to some heavy stuff. And I want us to grow in this. I want us to learn from this. I want us to deepen our love for one another in this. Okay? Here is where the idea of race, as we understand it today, actually came from. The idea of race came from the 1500s in what's called the Iberian Peninsula, which is right around Spain and Portugal, when a group of business people and, and traders uh, began to enslave Africans based upon what they believed 
was a biological distinction between them and the Africans. Spaniards and the Portuguese and the Africans. Now, there had been slavery throughout human history. We, we read about it in the Bible and we know about it historically. There was slavery in Europe. There was slavery in Asia. There was slavery in Africa. There was slavery in uh, even among Native American tribes. There's always been a certain kind of slavery uh, throughout human history. And as deplorable as slavery has always been, it was distinct from this kind of slavery, the 1,500 transatlantic slave trade in Africa. The difference was, historically, if someone uh, wasn't able to pay their debt, they might become an indentured servant, and then they would be essentially a slave until they paid off their debt, but it was a temporary situation. Or they would just be incorporated into the community. If they were a slave that had been captured due to war around the world, they would eventually be incorporated into the community and, uh, and, and live with inequality. And it was never based on a sense that somebody else is not human or less human. It was, it was not based on that. But with the transatlantic slave trade in the 1500s, this idea arose that, that we are biologically distinct from one another. And the reason this idea arose is sort of obvious when you look back at it. It's really hard to dehumanize someone to that degree unless you can differentiate that person from yourself. And over time, it became psychologically, sociologically, theologically uh, required if you're going to continue to enslave people to somehow be able to distinguish them and to call them something different from you and to say that they are biologically, genetically distinct and different from you and they don't, they're not you. That's where the idea of race came from. That's where the idea of red, yellow, black, and white actually came from. Of course, slavery then spread uh, to Britain and to Denmark and to France and to different European countries. And this idea of race took root in the hearts of humanity about 500 years ago. It's the first time that this idea of race in the way that we see it took root in people's hearts. And the idea became distilled in the writings of a very famous philosopher uh, named Immanuel Kant. Uh, Immanuel Kant, uh, as uh, some of you um, uh, may know, was was a brilliant and ingenious philosopher on many, many topics. On many topics, his, his work is, is, is important and powerful. But he also got caught up and came to believe this myth, this lie, known as biological race. And Immanuel Kant ended up writing a, a, a book and Uh, His book was called On the Different Races of Man. And in his book, he wrote out what he believed to be the four biological races of humanity, red, yellow, black, white. So when we hear the children's song, red and yellow, black and white, this is where it came from. It came from Immanuel Kant's mind. It came from 
uh, a world in which uh, Africans were being enslaved and, and dehumanized. And it came out of the need to, to stratify and, and separate ourselves from one another. That is where it came from. And by necessity, when we begin to separate ourselves into groups, we immediately also begin to order ourselves and place value upon different groups, groups that are different from us. And that's what Immanuel Kant did. In fact, as you could probably imagine, uh, whoever comes up with the theory uh, places his group at the top. I want to read you a quote from Immanuel Kant in his lecture, Physical Geography. He wrote this, Humanity is at its greatest perfection in the race of the whites. This was his belief. The yellow Indians do have a meager talent, he said. The Negroes are far below them and at the lowest point are a part of the Native American peoples. In other words, Immanuel Kant said not only are people biologically different from one another, genetically different from each other, but I can also rank them in terms of their worth and their value and their dignity. And in his mind, it was white, yellow, black, red. This is race through the eyes of man. But I want to turn a corner in this sermon today because there's something beautiful and powerful and wonderful about what we learn when we explore God's word and who God says we are, and we begin to reimagine ourselves and reimagine race through the eyes of God. I want to read you some scriptures about what God says about us and about our distinctions and about our differences and about the different qualities and traits that we have because there's one theme When you read the scripture, there is one theme, one abiding theme that continues to rise up over and over and over again. I'm going to start in John 17. This is Jesus praying at the end of his life. Father, I pray, he says, John 17, 20 through 23, that they may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they may also be one in us that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one. This is a picture of what Jesus is saying that we are and what we need to get back to. Because when God created humanity, he created us as a family a family that separated, a family that went different directions, and a part of the family began to mistreat another part of the family, and in order to continue mistreating that part of the family, had to subdivide us into distinct groups that aren't biologically real. We are one. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Galatians, says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Notice that the Apostle Paul says, look, even the distinctions that are real, 
where you come from, your, your gender, uh, your socioeconomic status, even those distinctions are overridden by our oneness. Not to mention, he doesn't mention race because he couldn't have conceived that we would have come up with this idea. But he says, even in the distinctions that are real, you are one. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 5, it says, With all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bear with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and is through all, and is in you all. This is the picture of humanity through the eyes of God. This is race through the eyes of God. There is one. Now in the coming weeks, we're going to get into some some big questions, some practical applications. Uh, We're going to continue to explore what that actually means to be one. We're going to have to explore some of the historical implications of, of, of of the distinctions that have arisen and the injustices that have occurred. We're going to dive into all of that. And we're going to do it under the umbrella and under the absolute truth that is clear in the scripture and it's clear in nature and it's clear in the world that in fact God made us to be one. Now my prayer for you, and I mentioned this at the beginning, I want your attention through this series. I want you to focus on this. This is important. This is deep. We need to dive into this. Number two, grace. Grace for me, grace for yourself, and grace for your friends, especially on Facebook if they start tweeting or or posting about this. Grace. And number three, spread the word. If we're going to be the vanguard that God wants us to be, if Christians are going to take the lead in the culture on the topic of race, we need to get the word out. So share it, tweet it, get it out there. Subscribe, do whatever you need to do on social media and otherwise send emails to your friends. Let's do this together. Let's actually be the church. In 1520, the church had an opportunity to say, no, we're not going to see one another in these distinctions. We're going to see each other as brothers and sisters. But the church failed. The church failed in 1520. Certainly there were voices crying out in the wilderness and saying, this is wrong, this is unjust, this isn't right. But overwhelmingly, the church failed in its mission to bring people and God together in love. That was in 1520. In fact, they didn't just stand by. In in some ways, they encouraged this divisiveness, okay? In 2020, we're not going to make the same mistake. Not here. Not us. We're going to stand up for what God says about who we are, and we're going to practice what it means to be one family.